Chapter Twenty Seven of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Twenty Seven, Part One, The First Blue Stocking. Miss Keeldar and her uncle had characters that would not harmonize, that never had harmonized. He was irritable, and she was spirited. He was despotic, and she liked freedom. He was worldly, and she, perhaps, romantic. Not without purpose had he come down to Yorkshire. His mission was clear, and he intended to discharge it conscientiously. He anxiously desired to have his niece married, to make for her a suitable match, give her in charge to a proper husband, and wash his hands of her for ever. The misfortune was, from infancy upwards, Shirley and he had disagreed on the meaning of the words suitable and proper. She never yet had accepted his definition, and it was doubtful whether, in the most important step of her life, she would consent to accept it. The trial soon came. Mr. Wynne proposed in form for his son, Samuel Fothrop Wynne. Decidedly suitable, most proper, pronounced Mr. Simpson. A fine, unencumbered estate, real substance, good connections. It must be done. He sent for his niece to the oak parlor. He shut himself up there with her alone. He communicated the offer. He gave his opinion. He claimed her consent. It was withheld. No, I shall not marry Samuel Fothrop Wynne. I ask why. I must have a reason. In all respects, he is more than worthy of you. She stood on the hearth. She was pale as the white marble slab and cornice behind her. Her eyes flashed large, dilated, unsmiling. And I ask in what sense that young man is worthy of me. He has twice your money twice your common sense, equal connections, equal respectability. Had he my money counted five score times, I would take no vow to love him. Please state your objections. He has run a course of despicable, commonplace profligacy, except that as the first reason I spurn him. Miss Keeldar, you shock me! That conduct alone sinks him in a gulf of immeasurable inferiority. His intellect reaches no standard I can esteem. There is a second stumbling block. His views are narrow. His feelings are blunt. His tastes are coarse. His manners vulgar. The man is a respectable, wealthy man. To refuse him is presumption on your part. I refuse, point blank. Cease to annoy me with the subject. I forbid it. Is it your intention ever to marry, or do you prefer celibacy? I deny your right to claim an answer to that question. May I ask if you expect some man of title, some peer of the realm, to demand your hand? I doubt the peer breathes on whom I would confer it. Were there insanity in the family, I should believe you mad. Your eccentricity and conceit touch the verge of frenzy. Perhaps... Ere I have finished, you will see me overleap it. I anticipate no less, frantic and impractical girl. Take warning. 
I dare you to sully our name by misalliance. Our name? Am I called Simpson? God be thanked that you are not. Be on your guard. I will not be trifled with. What in the name of common law and common sense would you, or could you do, if my pleasure led me to a choice you disapproved? Take care! Take care! Warning her with voice and hand that trembled alike. Why? What shadow of power have you over me? Why should I fear you? Take care, madam! Scrupulous care I will take, Mr. Simpson. Before I marry, I am resolved to esteem, to admire, to love. Preposterous stuff! Indecorous! Unwomanly! To love with my whole heart. I know I speak in an unknown tongue, but I feel indifferent whether I am comprehended or not. And if this love of yours should fall on a beggar? On a beggar it will never fall. Mediancy is not estimable. On a low clerk? A play actor? A play writer? Or, or, or? Take courage, Mr. Simpson. Or what? Any literary scrub? Or shabby, whining artist? For the scrubby, shabby, whining, I have no taste. For literature and arts, I have. And there I wonder how your fawthorn wind would suit me. He cannot write a note without orthographical errors. He reads only a sporting paper. He was the booby of Stillbro Grammar School. Unladylike language! Great God! To what will she come? He lifted his hands and eyes. Never to the altar of Hymen was Sam Wynne. To what will she come? Why are not the laws more stringent than I might compel her to hear reason? Console yourself, uncle. Were Britain the serfdom and you the czar, you could not compel me to this step. I will write to Mr. Wynne. Give yourself no further trouble on the subject. Fortune is proverbially called changeful, yet her caprice often takes the form of repeating again and again a similar stroke of luck in the same quarter. It appeared that Miss Kildar, or her fortune, had by this time made a sensation in the district, and produced an impression in quarters by her unthought of. No less than three offers followed Mr. Wynne's, all more or less eligible. All were in succession pressed on her by her uncle, and all in succession she refused. Yet amongst them was more than one gentleman of unexceptional character, as well as ample wealth. Many besides her uncle asked what she meant, and whom she expected to entrap, that she was so insolently fastidious. At last the gossips thought they had found the key to her conduct, and her uncle was sure of it. And what is more, the discovery showed his niece to him in quite a new light, and he changed his whole deportment to her accordingly. Fieldhead had, of late, been fast growing too hot to hold them both. The suave aunt could not reconcile them. The daughters froze in the view of their quarrels. Gertrude and Isabella whispered by the hour together in their dressing-room, and became chilled with decorous dread if they chanced to be left alone with their audacious cousin. But, as I have said, a change supervened. Mr. Simpson was appeased and his family tranquilized. The village of Nunley has been alluded to, its old church, its forest, its monastic ruins. It had also its hall, called the Priory, 
an older, a larger, a more lordly abode than any Briarfield or Winbury owned, and what is more, it had its man of title, its baronet, which neither Briarfield nor Winbury could boast. This possession, its proudest and most prized, had for years been nominal only. The present baronet, a young man hitherto resident in a distant province, was unknown on his Yorkshire estate. During Miss Kildar's stay at the fashionable watering-place of Cliffbridge, she and her friends had met with and been introduced to Sir Philip Nunley. They encountered him again and again on the sands, the cliffs, in the various walks, sometimes in the public balls of the place. He seemed solitary, his manner was very unpretending, too simple to be termed affable, rather timid than proud. He did not condescend to their society, he seemed glad of it. With any unaffected individual, Shirley could easily and quickly cement an acquaintance. She walked and talked with Sir Philip. She, her aunt, and her cousins, sometimes took a sail in his yacht. She liked him because she found him kind and modest, and was charmed to feel she had the power to amuse him. One slight drawback there was. Where is the friendship without it? Sir Philip had a literary turn. He wrote poetry, sonnets, stanzas, ballads. Perhaps Miss Kildar thought him a little too fond of reading and reciting these compositions. Perhaps she wished the rhyme had possessed more accuracy, the measure more music, the tropes more freshness, the inspiration more fire. At any rate, she always winced when he recurred to the subject of his poems, and usually did her best to divert the conversation into another channel. He would beguile her to take moonlight walks with him on the bridge, for the sole purpose, as it seemed, of pouring into her ear the longest of his ballads. He would lead her away to sequestered rustic seats, whence the rush of the surf to the sands was heard soft and soothing, and when he had her all to himself, and the sea lay before them, and the scented shade of gardens spread round, and the tall shelter of cliffs rose behind them, he would pull out his last batch of sonnets, and read them in a voice tremulous with emotion. He did not seem to know, that though they might be rhyme, they were not poetry. It appeared to Shirley's downcast eye and disturbed face that she knew it, and felt heartily mortified by the single foible of this good and amiable gentleman. Often she tried, as gently as might be, to wean him from this fanatic worship of the muses. It was his monomania. On all ordinary subjects he was sensible enough, and fain was she to engage him in ordinary topics. He questioned her sometimes about his place at Nunley. She was but too happy to answer his interrogatories at length. She never wearied of describing the antique priory, the wild sylvan park, the hoary church and hamlet. Nor did she fail to counsel him to come down and gather his tenantry about him in his ancestral halls. Somewhat to her surprise, Sir Philip followed her advice to the letter, and actually, towards the close of September, arrived at the priory. He soon made a call at Fieldhead, and his first visit was not his last. He said, when he had achieved the round of the neighborhood, that under no roof had he found such pleasant shelter as beneath the massive oak beams of the gray manor house of Briarfield. A cramped, modest dwelling enough, compared with his own, but he liked it. Presently it did not suffice to sit with Shirley in her paneled parlor, where others came and went, and where he could rarely find a quiet moment to show her the latest production of his fertile muse. 
he must have her out amongst the pleasant pastures and lead her by the still waters tete-a-tete rambling she shunned so he made parties for her to his own grounds his glorious forest to remoter scenes woods severed by the wharf vales watered by the air such assiduity covered miss kildar with distinction her uncle's prophetic soul anticipated a splendid future he already scented the time afar off when with nonchalant air and left foot nursed on his right knee he should be able to make dashingly familiar allusions to his nephew the baronet now his niece dawned upon him no longer a mad girl but a most sensible woman he termed her in confidential dialogues with mrs simpson a truly superior person peculiar but very clever he treated her with exceeding deference rose reverently to open and shut doors for her reddened his face and gave himself headaches with stooping to pick up gloves handkerchiefs and other loose property whereof surely usually held but insecure tenure he would cut mysterious jokes about the superiority of woman's wit over man's wisdom commence obscure apologies for the blundering mistake he had committed respecting the generalship the tactics of a personage not a hundred miles from fieldhead in short he seemed elate as any midcock on pattens his niece viewed his manoeuvres and received his innuendos with phlegm apparently she did not above half comprehend to what aim they tended when plainly charged with being the preferred of the baronet she said she believed he did like her and for her part she liked him she had never thought a man of rank the only son of a proud fond mother the only brother of doting sisters could have so much goodness and on the whole so much sense time proved indeed that sir philip liked her perhaps he found in her that curious charm noticed by mr hall he sought her presence more and more and at last with a frequency that attested it had become to him an indispensable stimulus about this time strange feelings hovered round fieldhead restless hopes and haggard anxieties haunted some of the rooms there was an unquiet wandering of some of the inmates among the still fields round the mansion there was a sense of expectancy that kept the nerves strained one thing seemed clear sir philip was not a man to be despised he was amiable if not highly intellectual he was intelligent miss kildar could not affirm of him what she had so bitterly affirmed of sam wynne that his feelings were blunt his tastes coarse and his manners vulgar there was sensibility in his nature there was a very real if not a very discriminating love of the arts there was the english gentleman in all his deportment as to his lineage and wealth both were of course far beyond her claims his appearance had at first elicited some laughing though not ill-natured remarks from the merry shirley it was boyish his features were plain and slight his hair sandy his stature insignificant but she soon checked her sarcasm on this point she would even fire up if any one else made uncomplimentary allusions thereto he had a pleasing countenance she affirmed and there was that in his heart which was better than three roman noses than the locks of absalom or the proportions of saul a spare and rare shaft she still reserved for his unfortunate poetic propensity but even here she would tolerate no irony save her own in short matters had reached a point which seemed fully to warrant an observation made about this time by mr york 
to the tutor Lewis. Yon brother Robert of yours seems to me to be either a fool or a madman. Two months ago I could have sworn he had the game all in his own hands, and there he runs the country, and quarters himself up in London for weeks together, and by the time he comes back he'll find himself checkmated. Lewis, there is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune, but once let slip, never returns again. I'd write to Robert if I were you, and remind him of that. Robert had views on Miss Kildar? inquired Lewis, as if the idea were new to him. Views I suggested to him myself, and views he might have realized, for she liked him. As a neighbor? As more than that, I have seen her change countenance and color at the mere mention of his name. Write to the lad, I say, and tell him to come home. He is a finer gentleman than this bit of a baronet, after all. Does it not strike you, Mr. York, that for a mere penniless adventurer to aspire to a rich woman's hand is presumptuous, contemptible? Oh, if you are for high notions and double refined sentiment, I've not to say. I'm a plain, practical man myself, and if Robert is willing to give up that royal prize to a lad rival, a pulling slip of aristocracy, I am quite agreeable. At his age, in his place, with his inducements, I would have acted differently. Neither baronet, nor duke, nor prince, should have snatched my sweetheart from me without a struggle. But you tutors are such solemn chaps. It is almost like speaking to a parson to consult with you. Flattered and fawned upon as Shirley was just now, it appeared she was not absolutely spoiled, that her better nature did not quite leave her. Universal report had indeed ceased to couple her name with that of Moore, and this silence seemed sanctified by her own apparent oblivion of the absentee, but that she had not quite forgotten him, that she still regarded him, if not with love yet with interest seemed proved by this increased attention which at this juncture of affairs a sudden attack of illness induced her to show that tutor brother of robert's to whom she habitually bore herself with strange alternations of cool reserve and docile respect now sweeping past him in all the dignity of the moneyed heiress and prospective lady nunley and anon accosting him as abashed schoolgirls are wont to accost their stern professors bridling her neck of ivory and curling her lip of carmine if he encountered her glance one minute and the next submitting to the grave rebuke of his eye with as much contrition as if he had the power to inflict penalties in case of contumacy lewis moore had perhaps caught the fever which for a few days laid him low in one of the poor cottages of the district which he his lame pupil and mr hall were in the habit of visiting together at any rate he sickened and after opposing the malady a taciturn resistance for a day or two was obliged to keep to his chamber he lay tossing on his thorny bed one evening henry who would not quit him watching faithfully beside him when a tap too light to be that of mrs gill or the housemaid summoned young simpson to the door how is mr moore to-night asked a low voice from the dark gallery come in and see for yourself is he asleep i wish he could sleep come and speak to him surely he would not like it but the speaker stepped in and henry seeing her hesitate on the threshold took her hand and drew her to the couch the shaded light showed miss kildar's form but imperfectly yet it revealed her in elegant attire 
there was a party assembled below including sir philip nunley the ladies were now in the drawing-room and their hostess had stolen from them to visit henry's tutor her pure white dress her fair arms and neck the trembling chainlet of gold circling her throat and quivering on her breast glistened strangely amid the obscurity of the sick-room her mien was chastened and pensive she spoke gently mr moore how are you to-night i have not been very ill and am now better i heard that you complained of thirst i have brought you some grapes can you taste one no but i thank you for remembering me just one from the rich cluster that filled a small basket held in her hand she severed a berry and offered it to his lips he shook his head and turned aside his flushed face but what then can i bring you instead you have no wish for fruit yet i see that your lips are parched what beverage do you prefer mrs gill supplies me with toast and water i like it best silence fell for some minutes do you suffer have you pain very little what made you ill silence i wonder what caused this fever to what do you attribute it miasma perhaps malaria this is autumn a season fertile in fevers i hear you often visit the sick in briarfield and nunley too with mr hall you should be on your guard temerity is not wise this reminds me miss kildar that perhaps you had better not enter this chamber or come near this couch i do not believe my illness is infectious i scarcely fear with a sort of smile you will take it but why should you run even the shadow of a risk leave me patience i will go soon but i should like to do something for you before i depart any little service they will miss you below no the gentlemen are still at table they will not linger long sir philip nunley is no wine-bibber and i hear he just now passed the dining-room to the drawing-room it is a servant it is sir philip i know his step your hearing is acute it is never dull and the sense seems sharpened at present sir philip was here to tea last night i heard you sing to him some song which he had brought you i heard him when he took his departure at eleven o'clock call you out to the pavement to look at the evening star you must be nervously sensitive i heard him kiss your hand impossible no my chamber is over the hall the window just above the front door the sash was a little raised for i felt feverish you stood ten minutes with him on the steps i heard your discourse every word and i heard the salute henry give me some water let me give it to him but he half rose to take the glass from young simpson and declined her attendance and can i do nothing nothing for you cannot guarantee me a night's peaceful rest and it is all at present i want you do not sleep well sleep has left me yet you said you were not very ill i am often sleepless when in high health if i had power i would lap you in the most placid slumber quite deep and hushed without a dream blank annihilation i do not ask that with dreams of all you most desire monstrous delusions the sleep would be delirium the waking death your wishes are not so chimerical you are no visionary 
Miss Kildar, I suppose you think so, but my character is not, perhaps, quite as legible to you as a page of the last new novel might be. That is possible, but this sleep, I should like to woo it to your pillow, to win for you its favor. If I took a book and sat down and read some pages, I can well spare half an hour. Thank you, but I will not detain you. I would read softly. It would not do. I am too feverish and excitable to bear a soft, cooing, vibrating voice close at my ear. You had better leave me. Well, I will go. And no good night? Yes, sir, yes. Mr. Moore, good night. Exits Shirley. Henry, my boy, go to bed now. It is time you had some repose. Sir, it would please me to watch at your bedside all night. Nothing less called for. I am getting better. There. Go. Give me your blessing, sir. God bless you, my best pupil. You never call me your dearest pupil. No, nor ever shall. Possibly Miss Kildar resented her former teacher's rejection of her courtesy. It is certain she did not repeat the offer of it. Often as her light step traversed the gallery in the course of a day, it did not again pause at his door, nor did her cooing, vibrating voice disturb a second time the hush of the sick room. A sick room, indeed, it soon ceased to be. Mr. Moore's good constitution quickly triumphed over his indisposition. In a few days he shook it off, and resumed his duties as tutor. That Auld Lang Syne had still its authority both with preceptor and scholar, was proved by the manner in which he sometimes promptly passed the distance she usually maintained between them, and put down her high reserve with a firm, quiet hand. One afternoon the Simpson family were gone out to take a carriage airing. Shirley, never sorry to snatch a reprieve from their society, had remained behind, detained by business, as she said. The business, a little letter-writing, was soon dispatched after the yard-gates had closed on the carriage. Miss Kildar betook herself to the garden. It was a peaceful autumn day. The gilding of the Indian summer mellowed the pastures far and wide. The russet woods stood right to be stripped, but were yet full of leaf. The purple of heath-bloom, faded but not withered, tinged the hills. The beck wandered down to the hollow, through a silent district, no wind followed its course, or haunted its woody borders. Field had gardens for the seal of gentle decay. On the walks, swept that morning, yellow leaves had fluttered down again. Its time of flowers, and even of fruits, was over. But a scantling of apples enriched the trees. Only a blossom here and there expanded pale and delicate amidst a knot of faded leaves. These single flowers, the last of their race, Shirley called as she wandered thoughtfully amongst the beds. She was fastening into her girdle a hueless and scentless nosegay, when Henry Simpson called to her as he came limping from the house. Shirley, Mr. Moore would be glad to see you in the schoolroom and to hear you read a little French, if you have no more urgent occupation. The messenger delivered his commission very simply, as if it were a mere matter of course. Did Mr. Moore tell you to say that? certainly why not and now do come let us once more be as we were at simpson grove we used to have pleasant school hours in those days miss kildar perhaps thought that circumstances were changed since then however she made no remark but after a little reflection quietly followed henry
End of chapter 27, part 1.